Informed Dissent, brought to you by Firearm Training Associates. Firearms Training Associates is, is a lucky company because we have been able to draft in some of the best instructors in the world. We have special operations guys, we have guys from the U.S. military, from foreign militaries that work for us. They provide a great deal of insight into self-defense. So we developed this so that our customers could come on the weekends and get the best training in the world. We pride ourselves on our civilian training. It's our armed civilian that's one of the most important things to us. We want to teach them how to survive dangerous situations. When you come through the course, as long as you're performing at a acceptable level, you're going to get a certificate that puts our stamp on it. And we take it serious when we put our stamp on there. When you get our gold label, that means that you've passed the class that you've attended. Firearm Training Associates, proud sponsor of Informed Descent. Find out more at ftatv.com. Informed Descent. The intersection of healthcare and politics with Dr. Jeff Barkey and Dr. Mark McDonald. Well, Mark, welcome to another episode of Informed Descent. Great to be with you. And to be back. We've, we've got an incredible guest tonight. I've been following this man now for the last couple of years. He is... Oh, I don't know. There's so many smart people out there that are doing research on COVID and all things related to health and geopolitics and so forth. But Dr. Paul Alexander is certainly in the top of his field, one of the brightest researchers uh, that I've known. Uh, I'm on some C-19, COVID-19 chat groups, and he is quite uh, robust on there, uh, on Substack and... Um, Basically, it's, it's, it's hard not to hear from him, and what he has to say is usually pretty spot on and brilliant, often ahead of the curve. So, Dr. Alexander, welcome to Informed Dissent. Good night. Thanks for having me again. Thank you very much. I'm humbled. Our pleasure. So, to our audience that doesn't know you, tell us a little bit about your background. I understand you grew up in Canada. Well, I'm originally from the Caribbean, but, um, but I spent about uh, 28 years or so in Canada, and um, <clears throat> I did my um, some of my schooling there. My background is in uh, epidemiology. From uh, well, I started at grad school at York University, then I went on to University of Toronto. I did um, epidemiology at University of Toronto. Then I did some uh, a certificate program at Johns Hopkins in <clears throat> biowarfare, bioterrorism. From there, I went on to Oxford and did some graduate, uh, a graduate degree in clinical epi, and I decided to complete a doctorate at um, in Canada at McMaster University in evidence-based medicine. And um, so that's that background. I did my postdoc there. Um, working, I worked. So at least let's say Jimmy into this discussion. I worked for the government of Canada as an epidemiologist for about 12 years. During that time, I was posted to um, South Asia for the government of Canada, working with the UNAIDS, um, UNDP, UNICEF, WHO project on uh, tuberculosis control in India, Pakistan, and those South, South Asian countries, and HIV, STDs, etc. Also, Jermaine is, um, let's say, as part of my graduate training, my 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 uh, supervisor, my doctoral supervisor, was the founder of evidence-based medicine. That term, evidence-based, the, the field of evidence-based, Dr. Gordon Guyatt, with Dr. Dave Sackett, they formed this 
I think in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, so I've been involved in the field of evidence base globally, making uh, all of the research methods. So, so basically, anything to do with randomized controlled trials, in terms of research, um, the methodology, observational studies, meta-analyses, systematic reviews, everything to do with how these things are conducted and refinements to them. So the, the unit I belong to at McMaster, we actually devise the methods. So for example, um, let's say uh, how the randomized control trials are conducted right now. If within our group we find that things need to change, we could refine the process, um, we, would, we would conduct research publish it in the medical literature, and then the respective bodies will decide to adopt or not. And um, one, one particular area is I'm very skilled in the area of critical appraisal of evidence in terms of medical research. So um, reviewing the statistical approach used in those papers and medicine, um, the, the research methods. I think very germane now is that... Um, Around mid-2019, WHO asked me to help them develop a training program for middle-income and low-income countries on conducting basic research. So while I was doing that, uh, COVID reared its head in China and in Italy, and they asked if I could work as part of their COVID response. So initially, I got a lot of my feet wet initially when COVID first emerged, so <clears throat> I was very fortunate to be involved at that level, understanding the COVID initially, and we didn't even know anything, to be honest. So it, 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 we were trying to formulate what, what the hell this was, how this happened, and where it was coming from, and how we could treat it. Around April, May of 2020, I got a request from the U.S. government, <clears throat> the Trump administration, to join, to go to Washington, to be a pandemic advisor in the Health and Human Services, basically as the interface between the White House and Health and Human Services as to the COVID pandemic. And, Did you get um, to meet Dr. Fauci? Oh, yeah. I, I dealt with all of these people, and um, <laughs> they're all characters in different ways. Uh, the one I loved and worked best with was Dr. Brett Girard, he was kind of like the testing guru. But um, look, um, so that's it. And from there, when I left in October, uh, so, you know, I had my serious wars with Fauci, CDC, NIH. Um, I have been working with the C-19, the U.S. C-19 group. Um, I worked with Dr. Zelenko, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Rich. These guys in formulating the early treatment model that, that you see the treatment algorithms. I still work with the C19 group and um, versions in Canada, but, but generally any and everywhere. And um, I'm very grateful for people like you. Your program, because um, you know we have been canceled and locked out from the legacy media and from academic publishing, because we've written a lot of papers and, and the medical journals won't even take them. So. So we are actually publishing high-level research as op-eds in, um, in, in uh, op-ed papers. But we're still publishing. 
and it's it's platforms like yourself that have been brave enough and um, that allow dissenting voices like mine, etc., to come on and speak. That has been incredible because you all have helped us to actually be the wall. Had we not, had you, people like me, McCullough, Rish, um, had we not stepped forward and said, look, there's a lot of things about this that is wrong from the lockdowns all the way up to this gene injection that we'd have been overrun as a society and I would say America or the world. So, so a huge credit to people like yourself for giving us the, the platform to, and to engage us so that we could tell that side of the story that was not being told. Of course. So, Paul, we're now two, three years into the pandemic. Um, the United States government and the various healthcare agencies are still pushing vaccination, if we want to call it that, including all the way down to children six months age. What, what should we know? What should we know now about the vaccination? Well, I mean, you guys are clinicians and experts too. I mean, if you ask me my opinion, well, I mean, first of all, in total, these, this gene injection platform, whether mRNA or DNA, has failed. It's ineffective. <clears throat> and, and we knew that one and a half years ago, soon after it came out of the gate, that it was not sterilizing the virus and was, it was failing. Um, the, uh, the immunity was waning, the vaccinal immunity was waning almost rapidly. The three of us know, but you say it's not sterilizing the virus. What are the consequences of using a non-sterilizing product to try to treat a pandemic? Well, I mean, to, 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 to respond to that in as simple a manner as possible, knowing that your audience are very uh, high-level critical thinkers too, and they, they actually know more than the medical profession, even scientists have realized. Um, you, you are, if, if you mass vaccinate a population into the teeth of a pandemic, where in the midst of a pandemic, when there's massive infectious pressure and virus circulating, um, you see, I think the key here that, um, was never explained properly and I will try quickly. And this is where I understand. And, you know, I'm a student of yourselves too. I'm a student of uh, like Dr. Van den Bosch. I have I've had to become very schooled in immunology and virology just to understand this crap that we've been living. And the reality about it is that <clears throat> normally when you vaccinate b between the prime and then the booster, you need like about between four to six weeks generally for the, for the vaccinal antibodies to, to get to what I think the word is full, full affinity maximal binding capacity so they can neutralize the target antigen, the virus, the antigen on the virus. Now, if the problem here is we've been vaccinating whilst when people get vaccinated, they're immediately exposed. And when you're exposed, that means you, you're going to get infected again. Those vaccinal antibodies are not getting the chance to get to that full capacity to neutralize the virus to sterilize it, um, stop infection, stop replication, stop transmission. So in other words, it's placing the virus under, it's making life uncomfortable for the virus, placing it under pressure, but not eliminating it, not sterilizing it. And the virus would select amongst itself for the most 
infectious hardiest variants, subvariants, etc. It will select those that could overcome that suboptimal pressure. And um, those become the new dominant variants, which, which will be more infectious, but, it, but there's a chance it could become more lethal. So massively vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic with a non-sterilizing product is actually stimulating the virus to mutate uh, to avoid the, uh, the, the pressure from the vaccine. Well, you're right. The pressure from the vaccine is not enough to elim eliminate the virus so that the virus will overcome that pressure. And because the virus, look, it's, it's like a, in a simple way, it's, I wouldn't say it's a living entity because it's really a bunch of genetic material packaged in a protein coat, etc. But it's, it's living in a way. It wants to eat, reproduce, procreate, um, excrete, do whatever we do to survive. And, uh, and, and it, it wants to not kill me, the host. That's the key. Because if it is that lethal, it will arrive at an evolutionary dead end and it cannot use my metabolic machinery, cellular, and I mean, you know this, to reproduce. So the virus is not going to be, let's say, the, the trajectory in a normal, normal, natural pandemic, a natural epidemic, the, the trajectory is, is for, as the mutations take place, for the virus to get less lethal, more mild, and just more infectious, so that the virus can hang around technically forever. Paul, you were, for a while, working in the Trump administration. Why did President Trump put up with this? Why did he allow this vaccine program to move forward with minimal testing? especially now that we've discovered this is a very flawed product that should be pulled from the market? <clears throat> well, look, I will, I will try to say it this way, because we know that the lockdowns failed, the school closures failed, and the vaccine, this gene injection is a huge problem in terms of it's not effective, and it, it actually causes harms and deaths. I think what we need to understand is this. <clears throat> Here was President Trump in January, February of 2020, unstoppable and going to be re-elected. I mean, the internal polls were showing that no one could have defeated him. No one. Republican side or even Democrat, including Biden, at that point. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, you have these people coming into your office and telling you and showing you these imperial college fraud models and telling you that uh, millions of people are going to die. And then they started to use this fraud PCR over cycle test that anything over 24 cycles was detecting viral dust but they're showing you books and they're showing you these charts and saying Mr. President this line is going to keep going up and up every day and many people are going to die so he had to tread the needle of running his pandemic response whilst running a re-election and I don't think we've ever had somebody facing that number one number two this guy trusted these people because he was not a scientist. He, he talks a lot of bravado. And if you listen to him, you see, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. But of course, he's reading stuff and he's a smart guy. But he trusted this scientific counsel. I don't think he understood that they were not giving him correct information and that they were not studying this vaccine properly. He assumed that for you to bring this to me, for you to come in this office and speak to me, for you to say sign off on this or sign off on that, that it is being done safely and properly. I think in retrospect, if President Trump 
based on what he's seeing today, could redo things. He would fire Fauci on Burke's day one. And I don't think he would bring Operation Warp Speed. And you know, I'll say it this way. There's a lot of disconnect in terms of some of the stuff that he's saying. But remember, he's in a situation where he's seeing that this has failed. And there is a problem. And I believe he's going to come with the language very soon to begin to, to really lay waste to the lockdowns and to the vaccine because they have failed. The problem is he... I mean, let me, let me say it this way because I was there. We would have discussions with, with um, Fauci, his team, Burks, their teams, and I would be in meetings and I could hear the discussions. I knew who was there. I was there. And what we were being told basically by the people that I always consider them in the alphabet agencies as deep state people was that if if you don't go along with what we are saying, we are going to leak to the press that President Trump is muzzling us. And that was a huge concern because we had to be putting that fire out all the time. So, for example, the, they could not go out and not be on the same page with the president, especially when the president was fighting to open schools uh, open the economy, etc. They were averse to that. They were fighting to keep kids masked, keep people masked, keep schools closed, etc. So when we had discussions over this is President Trump's messaging for today, what is your messaging? And if their messaging was averse to it, and somebody like me would chime in and say, now hold on, like people on Fauci's team or whomever, that does not comport or align with the science. In other words, you are saying kids are to remain masked when I am looking at all of the science here and it's showing that the masks are toxic and the masks have failed. We would get threatened, direct and indirectly, that we are going to go to the press after we meet and leak that you are muzzling us for President Trump. So at that point, you know, we had to have a lot of meetings quickly and... It was those threats of leaks that really hobbled the response. What hobbled the response to is Fauci and Burks' first statement out of the gate. When they came to the public, and they, and they said it repeatedly, that we are all at equal risk of severe outcome if exposed. And they refused to recognize the fact that we had a very steep age risk stratified curve showing that Granny at 85 with underlying conditions was a thousandfold greater risk than Johnny at 10. But they didn't say that. And they had the whole society spooked and going into hiding. And I think still today, we have parts of America that people can't understand that, that the risk to a child, a young person, a teenager, a young adult, middle-aged adult. In fact, the risk of survival for 70, 75 years old and below still is almost 100%. And, and that's the key. Paul, when did you realize when you were in the White House that there was something bad going on that was spinning out of control? And of course, we know now that President Trump has announced he's running for president again. He must have a scientific team around him that's advising him. 
Have you been invited or in contact with the Trump campaign to provide him information about what happened during COVID-19? Okay, well, well, first of all, my office was opposite the Capitol building. So my office was on the sixth floor of HHS. I've been to, I went to the White House many times for meetings. Um, Dr. Atlas, who I work a colleague, his office was in the Eisenhower building, which sits at the side of that compound. Um, I, I, I want to know how to answer that question. I'm thinking of how to answer. I am in discussion with, I'm discussion with people. I've, I've always been in discussion with people and even on the DeSantis side. I'm on this, in discussion with the, I support President Trump. I have to be blunt. Um, I support centered um, Governor DeSantis. I think if either one of them wins the nomination or is the nominee, we have to get behind them um, to get them back there. If it is Governor DeSantis, I'll do everything I can to help him. I think President Trump should have gotten his second term to complete what he started because the country was on a very um, positive trajectory. And I think what happened with the pandemic, um, it costed him the election. And I do think he understands that. The question, though, is he's going to have to find the language. And, of course, um, moving forward, it's not that I would like to be as part of any administration. I, I think I would be part of in some capacity. And, um, but that is up to other people to decide. But, for example, like right now I give the House, the U.S. Congress, support, technical support, COVID, whatever, and even Senate informally. So they don't pay me, but anytime they reach out to me for anything uh, to inform them and to guide them and to give them information. For example, recently they started hearings and they reached out and asked me, can I get, can I help them put forward, put together the questions that they're going to grill Walensky and Fauci and all of them when they come to Congress for hearings. So yeah, you know, I, I do all of that, you know, because I mean, I want America to succeed. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing for me. I want the next president or whomever to succeed. Look, look, if we have a good Democrat, to me, a good liberal, who loves America, who loves its borders, to me, who loves its, the country, loves the police, the military, loves the constitution, the flag, just just loves law and order. Does that exist? <laughs> well, that would require that the Democratic Party platform be entirely rewritten. Maybe Tulsi, <laughs> maybe Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know. Yeah, well, she's I not said, a Democrat I, anymore. Remember? That's right. I hey, said Paul, if important question for you. You you mentioned that you were born and grew up in the Caribbean. Mark and I are in need of a vacation right now. Where in the Caribbean uh, are you from? And do you have family there that Mark and I can stay with if we if we <laughs> if we go visit? Well, I'm originally from um, from Trinidad. My my grandparents on my dad's side actually were born in Cuba, and um, etc. But I have family throughout the Caribbean. Look, all of the Caribbean islands are good. I have family in Trinidad. No, seriously, send me an email. Uh, I might be able to. I'll, I'll be able to hook you up. Um, but uh, some of those islands are dealing with a lot of crime right now. So you know, sadly, because of a lot of poverty and stuff. But I mean. 
if you get a nice Caribbean vacation, it's good. I like the Bahamas. I'm just telling you places that I've been that I, I really like. And um, but but yeah, they have some nice islands, St. Kitts, you know, very nice, St. Lucia, very nice island, beautiful, small and uh, very cozy. I love rum cocktails. My favorite is the Aku Aku. I just paid $22 for a rum daiquiri made with Florida Cana uh, at a local bar here in LA if it shows the, the rise of inflation. I think that uh, I could probably get a daiquiri for less than 20, 20 US dollars anywhere in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is true. Well, listen, Paul, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on. You're one of the brightest, most articulate researchers here during COVID. And I enjoy reading your posts and following you on the C19 groups. You don't find it's too, um, because because look, I'm a very blunt matter of fact person. Do you find do you find it's uh, my my writing is too strong? I mean, I, I, I take criticism. I, I like I like people to tell me. Um, I just like to say it how I look at it. I appreciate your authenticity. No, I don't find it too blunt. I'm very similar. I try to tell the truth as I see it uh, and be as honest as I can. And I like it that you're being authentic um, and you have a background to back it up. You're not just some random person chiming in. You're somebody with years and years of experience in research and epidemiology. So uh, I think your opinion should hold weight in people that read it. And I want to say I'm very humble that people like the two of you with your expertise and stuff would even would entertain me and give me the platform and the flow. I appreciate that too. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you, Glad Paul. You. Appreciate it. We'll have you on again. Thank you. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board certified primary care physician and Dr. Mark McDonald, board certified child, adolescent and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent the intersection of healthcare and politics.